Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I'm Kyle Hyman here with our bishop, and for Easter we are praying the Regina Chaley. Let us begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Queen of heaven, rejoice. Hallelujah. The Son whom you merited to bear. Hallelujah. Has risen as he said. Hallelujah. Rejoice and be glad, O Virgin Mary. Hallelujah. For the Lord has truly risen. Hallelujah. Let us pray. O God, who through the resurrection of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, did vouchsafe to give joy to the world, grant, we beseech you, that through his mother, the Virgin Mary, we may obtain the joys of everlasting life through the same Christ our Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. It's the time of year for priest reassignments, and on this episode, Bishop explains the changes taking place for several parishes across our diocese, as well as how those decisions are made. Then Bishop continues his series on the matriarchs of the Old Testament. This time he focuses on Leah and Rachel, the wives of Jacob. It's quite the story. Kyle, it's this, a great story, huh? This all sounds like if you were describing this outside the context of the Bible, like this is a new Netflix show, I would assume this is something I'm not supposed to be watching. Like, the show wraps up with Bishop answering listener-submitted questions. Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I'm Kyle Hyman here with our bishop. Thank you again for taking some time out of your schedule for us. You're welcome, Kyle. Good to be here. It's good to have you. There's been a recent announcement about the priest's assignments that people might have seen posted. Care to fill us in on what's going on? Yeah, there were a lot of transfers. It took a lot of work, you know, after several months, really, of discernment. I think one of the reasons we have so many changes in assignments is we had a number of priests retire. Mm -hmm. So once you have that, I needed to have pastors for those parishes, and then it affects other parishes. Sure. So it's kind of a domino effect. Yeah. But yeah, so maybe just begin with a few of our priests who are retiring. Several months ago, Father Dan Durkin retired as pastor at St. Henry's. So, so that parish became open and Father Pius, Monsignor Pius, has been serving there as an administrator. But I'm assigning a new pastor there. By the way, all these changes take effect on, on June 23rd. Okay. So besides Father Durkin retiring, we also have the retirement of Father Paul McCarthy, who's been pastor at St. Stanislaus Koska Parish in New Carlisle. The uh, retirement of, of Father Gary Sigler, who's been at uh, has been pastor at St. Paul of the Cross Parish in Columbia City. Mm-hmm. And Father Phil Widman, who has been pastor at St. Mary Mother of God Parish in Fort Wayne. Though Father Whitman is going to continue being, I'm so grateful, the director of the Diocesan Museum, but he'll be um, retiring as a pastor. So kind of when I do the priest changes, I I kind of look at, okay, who's retiring? I look at that first. Also, keep in mind, we have another parish, St. Patrick's in Walkerton. The pastor, Father Eric Zimmer, is becoming the new president of the University of St. Francis in Fort Wayne. right. Now, this became a challenge because I'm only ordaining one new priest this year, so mm-hmm. so it took a lot. And, and then when I assign a priest as a pastor somewhere, of course, then that puts an opening 
at the place where he's leaving. Right. So, so it's a lot. So maybe to begin a little bit of these parishes where the pastors are retiring, I mentioned St. Henry's. Oh, another pastor retiring. Okay. Father Lawrence Tete. Uh-huh. The pastor at St. Therese. I didn't have him on my list here because he's actually not a priest of our diocese. He's incarnated in a di- his in the Spiritans uh-huh. religious community back in Nigeria. And he'll be so returning there, He'll right? be returning yeah. there. And Father Lawrence has served here a number of years. Uh, he was pastor at Our Lady of Hungary and at St. Therese in Fort Wayne and a uh, wonderful priest. Mm-hmm. And so what I've decided to do, we don't have enough priests to... To assign to all these parishes as pastors, so I've had to combine a couple. Okay. So I have assigned Father Matthew Coonan to be the pastor at St. Vincent's, or from, he had been pastor at St. Vincent's in Elkhart. I've, I'm assigning him to be pastor at St. Henry's in Fort Wayne, and also pastor of St. Therese Parish in okay. Fort Wayne. So he'll have two parishes that he'll be responsible for. So he's taking the place of Father Durkin and Father Lawrence, both of whom are retiring. The uh, St. Stanislaus Koska Parish in New Carlisle, I am assigning Father Bob Garrow to be pastor there. He has been serving as pastor at St. Anthony's in South Bend. So he will be moving to New Carlisle. Mm-hmm. Also, I want to mention with Columbia City, the parochial vicar at St. Jude's in Fort Wayne, a young priest, Father Dave Hunick, will become the new pastor at St. Paul of the Cross. And Father, so this will be his first uh, pastorate. Yeah. And he'll continue as part-time chaplain, by the way, at Bishop Dwenger High School. So I'm sure the Dwenger students are happy to hear that. Right. So he'll be replacing Father Gary Sigler at St. Paul of the Cross. I had mentioned that uh, Father Widman will be retiring as pastor at St. Mary's in Fort Wayne, and the new pastor there will be Father Wimmel Jayasuria, who's been a parochial vicar at the cathedral in Fort Wayne, and he also serves as judge in the diocesan tribunal. Hmm. Well, he'll be the new pastor at St. Mary's Fort Wayne, and he'll continue to be a judge in the diocesan tribunal. Okay. As far as St. Patrick's Walkerton, I'm assigning Father Monsignor Michael Heinz there for the summer just to be an administrator until I'm able to assign a new parish, a new pastor in Walkerton. Okay. I would also want to mention— he'll be going back to the Mount in the fall. To, he'll be going back to Mount St. Mary's, yeah. Mm-hmm. I also want to mention that the pastor also—we have another opening—the pastor at St. Peter's Parish in Fort Wayne. He's mm-hmm. not retiring, but he's going back to Sri Lanka. Okay, Father Tyrell Alice, mm-hmm. and he's also a member of a religious community. So he'll be he's being recalled by his religious superior. So that made another open parish. Right. So for St. Peter's in Fort Wayne, I've assigned Father Patrick Hake, who's been serving as parochial vicar at St. John the Baptist, Fort Wayne. He'll become the new pastor at St. Peter's, and he'll be also assigned to be a part-time chaplain at Bishop Lohr's High School. Okay. So that left a few other openings. So you're probably thinking, well, what? who's going to St. Vincent's in Elkhart, where uh-huh. Father Matt Coonan was? I'm assigning Father Craig Borchard, okay. who's been parochial vicar at St. Michael's Parish in Plymouth, to be the new pastor at St. Vincent's in Elkhart. 
the you say, okay, who's going to St. Anthony's in South Bend? Because Father Garrow is leaving there. I'm assigning Father Ben Mullenkamp, who's been pastor at St. Louis Besanson Parish in New Haven, to become the pastor at St. Anthony's in South Bend. Okay. I can see the dominoes uh, yeah, continuing. Yeah, the domino, exactly. <laughs> so then who's going to St. Louis Besanson? Mm-hmm. Father Louis Fowoyo, who's been parochial vicar at St. Elizabeth Ann Seton Parish in Fort Wayne, will become the new pastor of St. Louis Parish. Okay. Because St. Elizabeth Ann Seton is um, losing Father Louis, I'm assigning another priest there, Father Luke Okoye, who will be the new parochial vicar at St. Elizabeth Ann Seton Parish. Okay. Who's going to replace Father Craig in Plymouth? That will be Father Spencer St. Louis. Oh, good. Who's been a priest for a year. He's been back in Rome finishing his licentiate degree. Mm-hmm. So he will become, he'll be back. He is back. And he'll be parochial vicar at St. Michael's in Plymouth. Another change is Father Thomas Zare, who's been parochial vicar at St. Elizabeth Ann Seton Parish in Fort Wayne to become parochial vicar at St. Charles Borromeo Parish in Fort Wayne. I think that's everybody. I can't, I hope I'm not forgetting anyone. I I don't announce the assignments of the newly ordained until after they're ordained, so. And that ordination will take place on the 6th? 6th of June, and I'll be ordaining one new priest and six new deacons. Okay, all in one ceremony. All in one ceremony. Which yep. isn't typical. Usually those would be right. two separate ordinations, the diaconate right. and the priesthood. But with the coronavirus and everything, mm-hmm. we delayed the diaconate ordination, so I'm doing them both together. And I'm going to do it at St. Vincent's Parish in Fort Wayne because the church is bigger than the cathedral okay. so that we can invite more people. Uh, we'll have to be doing the social distancing and mm-hmm. St. Vincent's is church is significant. The seating capacity is significantly higher than the seating of the cathedral of the Immaculate Conception. And I imagine as we get closer to that date, we'll have more information about live streaming and, right. and all of that as well. So, right. All right. Well, sounds like a, a lot of work went into that. Is it, do you feel pretty good about this or do you feel like we're still kind of in a, a pinch as a diocese here? Well, I feel good about it. We've been able to get through this. You know, it was challenging this year because of the number of retirements, but, you know, we're still doing good with vocations. The fact that I'm ordaining six transitional deacons, that's a really good sign. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's helpful for the future, but we're still in this kind of a pinch situation where we you know, like where I have to have some priest be pastor of two parishes or or where a place loses a parochial vicar, you know. So it's we're not out of the woods yet. Mm-hmm. And what is the decision-making process for this? Is there a committee that's involved with this? Or is that very from diocese to diocese on how they... Most, most dioceses, including ours, has, has a priest personnel board. So they are an advisory group to the bishop. Our priest personnel board, I discuss all of this with them and receive their opinions. Of course, also it's important that I meet with these priests and see where they're at and, you know, and I do that as well. And I have a good knowledge of our parishes. I feel I know our priests and our parishes very well mm-hmm. and know their needs. And, um, but it's still a challenging thing. Sure. Yeah. All right. Well, also coming up, we will be having 
Some masses restarting again this weekend to celebrate the Ascension. And we've talked about the Ascension in the past, but maybe just a, a brief recap help us to, to get in the spirit of the Ascension for this weekend. Yeah, it's a great feast. I love the, you know, the best meditation on the Ascension I've ever read is, is in the appendix of Pope Benedict XVI's second volume of Jesus of Nazareth, the Holy Week, and uh, where he, he has beautiful chapters on the the passion of Christ, the death of Christ, and the resurrection of Jesus. But then he does an appendix on the ascension. It's really a great meditation. So I recommend that for people. But basically, what is the ascension? It's a historical event, definitely, but it's also something that transcends history. It's the entrance of the humanity of Jesus into divine glory. Hmm. That's what's symbolized by the cloud and by heaven that he's being ascended. He, it's the final elevation, we can call it, of Jesus's human nature into this condition of divine glory. So as the Son of God descended from heaven in the incarnation, Christ assumed a real human body, unlike what the Gnostics would say. Mm-hmm. He assumed a rational soul. We have in Christ two natures, divine and human, in one person, the divine person of the Son of God. We call that unity of the two natures in one person the hypostatic union. And that will never cease, cease, and, and they're unmixed, the two natures. So we have this ascent into heaven, which again is the entry of Christ's humanity into divine glory. And we read in the scriptures and we profess in the creed that he's seated at the right hand of the Father. That is basically expressing the truth that he he is in the glory and honor of divinity. And he intercedes for us as our mediator. He has preceded us into the glorious kingdom of the Father. So we live in hope. We're members of his body. He's the head of the church. We're members of his body. And we live in hope of joining him there and participating in this perfect life of the most holy trinity, this communion of life, this communion of love with the trinity, together with Mary and the angels and all the saints. That it's our ultimate goal. And that's our supreme happiness. So when we celebrate the Feast of the Ascension, it's also a, not only is it a glorious mystery, it's also a a mystery of hope for all of us to one day live in heaven, which is really to to be with Christ. We have to resist that temptation of thinking of heaven as just kind of someplace in the in the uh, solar system or in the galaxy, you know, that image of Jesus going up. We're not talking about his going into the strat- stratosphere somewhere. Right. This is entering into a new dimension, I guess, mm-hmm. of existence that really surpasses our human understanding. Right. And technically, 40 days after Easter would be tomorrow. So tomorrow would technically be the Ascension, but we move that from that Thursday to the the Sunday to celebrate that on the weekend. Right, yes. You know, I remember when, you know, even back, still back in Pennsylvania, the Ascension is celebrated on Thursday, Mm -hmm. uh, tomorrow. But most dioceses, it's really by province, most provinces of the United States, 
have moved it to to Sunday. I think and this was kind of I, I'm not thrilled with that. I kind of like the holy day being on the fortieth fortieth day, but right. I understand the reasoning behind it. I think the reasoning was that many, you know, a lot of people just weren't going to mass mm-hmm. on that holy day, and it's such an important feast, the Ascension. So they transferred its observance to Sunday. All right. Well, coming up, we will continue our series talking about the mothers of the Old Testament with Leah and Rachel. And we have some listener submitted questions right here on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I'm Kyle Hyman here with our bishop, and we have had this series over the past two episodes talking about matriarchs of the Old Testament, starting with Sarah, then going into Rebecca, and today we're talking about the wives of Jacob, maybe a little scandalous to those listening, Leah and Rachel. Should I give you a little quiz on Rebecca and see how much you remember or about <laughs> sure. Sarah? Sure, we'll see how okay. I do. Okay, who was uh, Rebecca's husband? Isaac. Very good. And she was a deceptive woman, wasn't she? Right. What did yeah. she do? She had Jacob pretend to be Esau so that he could get the blessing of Isaac. Right. Very After he good. had already had gotten the birthright by. Yeah. Uh, exactly. Bribing his brother with some stew. <laughs> you were paying attention, yeah. Kyle. That's good. So what happens to Jacob then? We heard, it, I, I think in our last episode, I talked about how Rebecca had Jacob leave because Esau was looking to kill him for, for being deceived. And uh, so, you know, they were very concerned. They didn't want... Jacob to marry a Canaanite woman, mm-hmm. like Esau had done. You know, Esau had two Canaanite wives. So, so basically, they wanted him to go to the, back to their homeland, and so that's what he did. That's kind of to go to his uncle Laban. Laban, remember, was the brother of Rebecca. So Isaac sends him, gives him a blessing, say, you know, may God make you fertile, may He multiply you, may He give His blessing. And all that. So, so Isaac sent his son Jacob on his way. So let's just move ahead to, to understand about Leah and Rachel. And this really is in chapter 29 of the book of Genesis. Jacob arrives back, or, or Jacob arrives at this homeland of his father, and he's escaping his brother Esau. But he was also being sent there to find a wife so that he wouldn't marry a Canaanite woman. So let me read a little bit from chapter 29 and about his arrival in Haran. Jacob came to the land of the Easterners. Looking about, he saw a well in the open country with three droves of sheep huddled near it, for droves were watered from that well. A large stone covered the mouth of the well. Well. Only when all the shepherds were assembled there could they roll the stone away from the mouth of the well and water the flocks. Then they would put the stone back again over the mouth of the well. Jacob said to them, Friends, where are you from? We are from Haran, they replied. Then he asked them, Do you know Laban, son of Nahor? We do, they answered. He inquired further, Is he well? He is, they answered. 
And here comes his daughter, Rachel, with his flock. Remember now, Laban is Jacob's uncle. Uh So Rachel's his first cousin. Okay. Okay. So then he said, there is still much daylight left. It is hardly the time to bring the animals home. Why don't you water the flocks now and then continue pasturing them? We cannot, they replied, until all the shepherds are here to roll the stone away from the mouth of the well. Only then can we water the flocks. While he was still talking with them, Rachel arrived with her father's sheep. She was the one who tended them. As soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of his uncle Laban, with the sheep of his uncle Laban, he went up, rolled the stone away from the mouth of the well, and watered his uncle's sheep. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and burst into tears. He told her that he was her father's relative, Rebekah's son, and she ran to tell her father. When Laban heard the news about his sister's son, Jacob, he hurried out to meet him. After embracing and kissing him, he brought him to his house. Jacob then recounted to Laban all that had happened, and Laban said to him, You are indeed my flesh and blood. After Jacob had stayed with him a full month, Laban said to him, should you serve me for nothing just because you are a relative of mine? Tell me what your wages should be. Now, Laban had two daughters. The older was called Leah, the younger Rachel. Leah had lovely eyes, but Rachel was well-formed and beautiful. Since Jacob had fallen in love with Rachel, he answered Laban, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban replied, I prefer to give her to you rather than to an outsider. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel. Yet they seemed to him but a few days because of his love for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife that I may consummate my marriage with her, for my term is now completed. So Laban invited all the local inhabitants and gave a feast. At the nightfall, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and Jacob consummated the marriage with her. Laban assigned his slave girl, Zilpah, to his daughter Leah as her maidservant. In the morning, Jacob was amazed. It was Leah. So he cried out to Laban, how could you do this to me? Was it not for Rachel that I served you? Why did you dupe me? It is not the custom in our country, Laban replied, to marry off a younger daughter before an older one. Finish the bridal week for this one, and then I will give you the other two, in return for another seven years of service with me. Jacob agreed. He finished the bridal week for Leah, and then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel in marriage. Laban assigned his slave girl Bilhah to his daughter Rachel as her maidservant. Jacob then consummated his marriage with Rachel also, and he loved her more than Leah. Thus he remained in Laban's service another seven years. And now I'll stop there. But <laughs> Kyle, it's this, a great story, huh? This all sounds like if you were describing this outside the context of the Bible, like this is a new Netflix show. I would assume this is something I'm not supposed to be watching. Like, I know. I, I can't. Yeah, I, can't I don't think that. you'd want your kids to be watching this. Right. But I mean, when you think about how Jacob had stolen his brother's Esau's birthright. He got deceived. Well, now he gets deceived. I mean, where he deceived Esau. Right. Now Jacob gets deceived. He thought he was going to be marrying Rachel, who he loved, and he ended up getting 
Leah, uh-huh. her older sister. He was deceived by Laban. You know, he had worked there seven years in order to have Rachel and was deceived. I don't know, maybe he was drinking too much that night that he didn't realize uh-huh. that he had consummated a marriage with Leah rather than Rachel. And then he had to work another seven years in order to get the second wife, Rachel. So anyhow, it is kind of interesting to see then about children, okay? On marrying Jacob, Rachel started had trouble uh, conceiving, mm-hmm. but Leah didn't. Leah had four children at first. She had Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, okay? So she had no trouble conceiving and bearing these sons. And Rachel, of course, she's kind of upset. She's not getting pregnant. So Rachel asked her husband, Jacob, to sleep with her maid, Milha. And that was kind of the custom of the day. We saw this with Sarah as well. And Bilha, her maid, gave birth to two boys, Dan and Naphtali. So there's this rivalry between Leah and Rachel going on. So then Leah asked Jacob to sleep with her maid, Zilpah. And she also gave birth to two sons, Gad and Asher. But that didn't really satisfy Leah. She got sexually active again with Jacob and gave birth to another two boys and a girl, Issachar, Zebulon, and the girl's name is Dinah. Mm -hmm. So Rachel, all up until now, didn't have any of her own, although her her servant had two boys, Dan and Naphtali. Do you recognize these names? These are the 12 sons of Jacob, the 12 tribes, you know? Finally, though, Rachel had her own son. She gave birth to Joseph. And Joseph is the one who got sold into slavery by his brothers in Egypt and all that. Laban and his sons were getting irritated about how well Jacob was doing. So there was some hostility and Jacob decided that he should go back home and bring Leah and Rachel with him and all the boy, all the children. And it was on the way back that Rachel gave birth to another son, Benjamin. And she died during that childbirth. So it's quite a story. Um, Rachel and Leah all these these sons and uh i think maybe we could leave it at that unless you have any questions well i guess that whole idea of polygamy going on and all this does this maybe become something that people would use to defend the actions of polygamy in certain religious groups yeah i think so there are some crazy you know kind of sects out there that will use the polygamy that took place in this ancient history as a justification for polygamy today. Yeah. How do uh, we square that as? No, I mean, we believe, yeah. I mean, monogamy, you know, this was, remember, this is ancient history here that we're looking at the the time of the patriarchs. This is before Moses and the 10 commandments where okay. God's will becomes clear. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Got it. All right, well, if you have any questions for Bishop, you can ask them by going to RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop. You can text the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598. And we have questions about indifference versus those against the faith. Also, if it's necessary to reconcile relationships and more coming up on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes 
Brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I'm Kyle Hyman here with our bishop, and I will be asking questions that you have submitted for Bishop to respond to. Our first question, do you find it harder to evangelize to those who are indifferent about the faith as opposed to those who are staunchly against it? How can we spread the faith to those who just don't seem to care about religion? Good question. I, I do find it sometimes harder to evangelize those who are indifferent because with some who are staunchly against it, they're, they're th- often th- have thought about the ultimate questions. Mm-hmm. In other words, they're interested in what is the meaning of life. Now, sadly, they've sometimes have, you know, might have become atheists or agnostics or, or whatever, mm-hmm. but they're asking the deeper questions. They're, they're interested. They want to know. They're probing. They're searching. Not all of them, but a, a lot of them are but they haven't yet accepted the gift of faith. Whereas some who are completely indifferent, they just ignore the ultimate questions Mm -hmm. or aren't interested in the transcendent. Don't really think about what is the meaning of life or Mm -hmm. what's the purpose of my life. So to engage them, you really have to get them motivated to think about bigger things because oftentimes they may be so immersed in just uh, everyday life or their own particular situation that they're, they don't really think about the ultimate things. So I would agree with the one who asked that sometimes it is different. It is harder to evangelize those who are indifferent. Now, how do we spread the faith to those who just don't seem to care about religion? I would say, you know, try to get them to think about the ultimate questions. And sometimes Mm -hmm. people do when a crisis comes in their life, right? You know, maybe the death of a loved one or, some particular trial that they face. Mm -hmm. And it's at that point that they become open to the question of God. Yeah. All right. Next question. Is it appropriate to say an illness is God's will? Or is it more accurate to say that God is allowing the illness to happen? I would say the latter. It kind of gets to that question when we talked about physical evil. Remember, Mm -hmm. we had a whole episode, I think, on that. So physical evil... You know, we talked about being God's permissive will, that God allows these things. So when we speak of the will of God, it's important to remember these categories. There's God's positive will, and there's God's permissive will. So when we look at something like illness, or we look at suffering like from a natural disaster, we can speak that God wills this, God's permissive will. In other words, he allows it to happen, but it's not his positive will because God does not will evil. God only wills that which is good, that which is holy, when we speak about his positive will. But everything that happens in the world really is part of his permissive will. God allows these events to happen. So there's a lot we could delve into this, but I think we already did when we talked about that question of physical evil. Yeah. So people can go back and check out the April 8th episode. It's called Coronavirus. Why is this happening? Where you did go much into more detail about that. 
All right. Next question. Can you talk about the difference between forgiveness in a relationship versus reconciling a relationship? In other words, I understand the importance of forgiving people who have hurt me, but am I obligated to resume the relationship with that person? That's a great question. Let me just begin by saying for forgiveness to take place, you only need one person. Okay. Hmm. For reconciliation to take place, you need two people. Okay. So I, I always look at it that way. You know, we're all called to forgive. Okay. And it can be difficult sometimes because we're hurt sometimes and sometimes deeply hurt by another person. But we know the gospel clearly teaches us, Jesus clearly teaches us that we are to forgive. I mean, we pray it all the time Hmm. in the Our Father, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Sometimes it takes a while to, to be able to forgive someone who hurts us. But reconciling with that person, you can't do that unless there's an openness on both parties to reconcile to resume a relationship. So forgiveness, I think, is distinct from reconciliation. For example, let's say for reconciliation to happen, it's wonderful when it it does happen, but there are times where it's not possible, where one party just refuses to be reconciled. We may want to be reconciled with someone, but they don't want to be reconciled. And there might be times for our own, for a person's own safety, right. that they can't reconcile with someone else, mm-hmm. but they've forgiven that person. So I hope that's helpful answer to the, that question. Yeah. Anybody who has questions, you can go to RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop. You could text the Holy Cross College text line at 260 436 9598. And coming up, Bishop will answer questions about book recommendations for a high school English class, if saints feel emotions in heaven, and more here on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I'm Kyle Hyman, asking the questions that you've submitted for Bishop to respond to. Our next question is, what are some books you would recommend for a Catholic high school English class? I have about 50 books I would recommend. Do you want me to get? (laughs) That's going to be a busy class. You know what? uh, For a Catholic high school English class, you know, I think I I would love to teach that, you know, but there's so many good books, especially thinking of novels. You know, The Brothers Karamazov comes immediately to mind. Okay. One of the greatest novels ever written by Fyodor Dostoevsky. I don't know that that's probably very much at the top of my list. When's the last time you read that? Oh, it's been several years. Although I do go back to certain passages now and then. Yeah. Other favorites that I would recommend would be, I mean, some classics like Uncle Tom's Cabin by Harriet Beecher Stowe. Um, Death Comes to the Archbishop by Willa Cather, I think is is wonderful. The Power and the Glory by Graham Greene that, you know, during the government persecution of the Catholic Church in Mexico. And Robinson Crusoe, Daniel Defoe about I mean, about faith, how faith can sustain us. I mean, great story. Hunchback of Notre Dame, another classic. 
French literature by Victor Hugo. Be kind of tough for high school, maybe, but Divine Comedy by Dante, one of the greatest works of literature ever written, especially uh-huh. if they can read it in in Italian. I would recommend that. Oh, really? <laughs> Did you have you read it in Italian? Uh, parts, yeah, okay. yeah, not not cover to cover. <laughs> um, Lord of the Rings, I love the trilogy and The Hobbit by uh, J.R.R. Tolkien, mm-hmm. a great fantasy world that. Of course, we know the movies, uh-huh. and the books are, are even better. Really amazing. Have you watched the movies? I, oh, yeah. Several times. Okay. I love him. Yeah. Les Miserables by uh-huh. Victor Hugo. Some may have seen the, the Broadway show, which is beautiful music, but find that whole idea of redemption, you know, amidst injustice, etc. Victor Hugo's Les Miserables, great, mm-hmm. great novel. Grapes of Wrath by John Steinbeck. Count of Monte Cristo is another one. Again, this theme of redemption, forgiveness, we've been talking about hope, justice by Alexander Dumas. I hope in our Catholic high schools they're reading these books. I, yeah. I, I should, you know, I might check on it now that I got this, this question. Man for All Seasons is a real, another really good one by uh, Richard Bolt. Uh, I love that story of, of uh, St. Thomas More. I mentioned Dostoevsky's brother Karamazov, brothers Karamazov. I'd also say his book Crime and Punishment, but you know we're talking about a very thick book. Right. I don't know if our high school kids would appreciate that <laughs> assignment. I mean, everything from Mark Twain, Mark Twain's Joan of Arc, for example, another good thing to read. Hmm. I love to see our our young people reading some of these classics. I mean, things like The Great Gatsby, mm-hmm. F. Scott Fitzgerald. The Three Musketeers, also Alexander Dumas. I, I love these. When I was in high school, I read many of them in college and, and also some on my own. G.K. Chesterton, also some of his nonfiction as well as his fiction. Any you know, Chesterton jump out to you as a highlight? Well, Orthodoxy would be my favorite. That's not fiction, but, but you know, a fiction work, The Man Who Was Called Thursday, I think high school students would enjoy. Okay. The Man Who Was Thursday uh, by G.K. Chesterton, yeah. Or even his his Father Brown stories, yeah. Uh-huh. So is that enough? I, I think that'll be a pretty full curriculum for right now. All right, our next listener submitted question. If humans are born with an inclination to sin, why are we encouraged to reproduce when it just increases the amount of sin in the world? Because as St. Paul says, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. Oh. Yeah, human life, there's something greater than sin. And human life is a precious gift from God, and we need to be open to that life. Even though there is this inclination to sin, there's the greater, much greater reality of grace. All right. Someone asked, while there is a lot of talk about young adults leaving the church, I have also noticed a lot of young people who are very passionate about their faith. What can they do to take their faith to the next level? We should always be looking at trying to take our faith to the next level. And to young adults, you know, what's the next level when it comes to, I would start with your prayer. Looking at, okay, what's my prayer life like? How do I get to the next level? It might be, if you're not praying with scripture, that might be the next level. If you haven't gotten into the practice of meditation or more contemplative style of prayer, that would be the next level. Mm Also, you can look at your intellectual life. What's the next level? How much do you know about the faith? Mm -hmm. Are there areas that you really wouldn't be able to explain to others? Mm -hmm. 
Maybe things like, okay, I don't have a whole lot of knowledge of the Bible. Well, start reading Bible commentaries or, or what's the next level, you know, theologically, you know, are you able to explain to others in a good way, uh, some of the mysteries that we, that we believe, whether it be the mystery of the Trinity or the mystery of the incarnation or the mystery of the Eucharist and the other sacraments, or maybe you think, well, you know, I really don't understand much about this sacrament. Well then study, Mm -hmm. find a good book, consult. So that's another way to get to the next level. Also, how are we living our faith? How do I get to the next level in really practicing the Christian life? So we look at, okay, what am I doing to help others? What am I doing to serve others? What am I doing to express my love for God and living his commandment to love one another as he has loved us? Do I do anything for the poor? Do I do anything for those less fortunate than myself? When we get to the next level, think about those things. So I would put it in those three categories, prayer, study, and action. Prayer, study, and action. Very good. All right, our next listener submitted question. Do you think the saints feel emotions in heaven? In other words, do they feel sad when they see a family and friends struggling on earth or feel happy when they see us succeed? You know, I, I get these questions about heaven. It's really tough because none of us have the experience. We have a little maybe taste of it through joy and love on earth, but mm. heaven is beyond us. But at the same time, I think it's good to think about this. We can use our imagination and we can use human reason where we can speculate, okay? And I think God wants us to speculate about this. But are there emotions in heaven? I'd say yes, because that's part of being human. Hmm. We don't stop being human when we go to heaven. But I think it's there'd be different. In other words, they're transformed. You know, we're transformed in this glorified life. Now, how is that going to be? How do we have emotions? How are we transformed that way? You know, on the one hand, you know, you can say, well, is there sadness in heaven? I mean, that's an emotion. Mm -hmm. But we read in Scripture, in this book of Revelation, that God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. So some will say, well, wouldn't you be sad about those we loved who might be in hell. Mm-hmm. Okay, think about that. When we, when we read the Sermon on the Mount, what does Jesus say? He says, he will say to them, I never knew you. Makes me think that God will wipe our memories clean. When you think about those in hell, the damned, they no longer really are, how would I say this? They're... This is Peter Kreft, the philosopher, has speculated about this, and um, he wrote a book, uh, Everything You Always Wanted to Know About Heaven But Were Afraid to Ask, uh-huh. and he, he speculate, speculates about that, that in heaven, we won't be living in the past. We'll have no regrets. We will have no fears. We're living in the eternal present. We don't weep over ashes. We only weep over over the things he says that those in hell they are like ashes not like wood they once were fully human fully alive real men and women 
but hell is a place not of eternal life, but of eternal death. We do not love or weep over ashes. We only love or weep over the thing that existed before it was burnt. Hmm. So it's kind of hard for us to understand this. And again, this is just speculation, but the emotions are, are going to be transformed. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and we know there will be no sadness in heaven. All right. Our final question, if you could choose one saint to be your spiritual advisor, who would it be? No question. St. John the Apostle, my confirmation saint, uh-huh. great theologian. You know I love the gospel of St. John. I don't know that anyone who's penetrated more deeply into the mysteries of our faith than mm. he who was inspired by God to write the fourth gospel. All right. Well, thank you, Bishop, for another great episode of Truth and Charity. Could we get your Episcopal blessing before we go? Sure. The Lord be with you. And with your spirit. May Almighty God bless you, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes is brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. What's the difference between Notre Dame Federal Credit Union and a bank? Well, banks are owned by investors looking to make a profit. Notre Dame FCU is different. We are a not-for-profit member-owned cooperative. Our mission is to help our members improve their lives by providing products and services to save them money. If we end up with too much money ourselves, we simply give it away to our members' favorite charities. Last year, over a million dollars. You already share our values. Why not share in our benefits? Notre Dame Federal Credit Union.